Listener Production. G'day, g'day, Antoinette Latouf here, and my guest today on the weekend briefing is Australia's most decorated female Paralympian. So when Ellie Cole claimed her 17th Paralympic swimming medal in Tokyo, she made history. She was also just recognised in Australia Day Honours this year, and I met Ellie last year when we were both speakers at an event. And it's not often that you meet someone that you immediately feel that you've known for years. So we hit it off. Not only is she a champion, she has a wicked sense of humour and also how true happiness is not about accolades, no matter how impressive they are, because she has many impressive accolades. We also canvass how she came to that realisation. Later in the show, it's weekend list time where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat, listen to and everything in between. I'm still after a funny fiction book recommendation. So come on, briefers, get in touch with your faves. But first, here's my chat with Ellie Cole, who lost a leg to cancer as a child. And she's a legend on so many fronts. Ellie Cole, welcome to the weekend briefing. And look, I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but did you instantly adore me like I did you when we met last year? <laughs> yes, it was instantaneous. <laughs> and to be to be fair, I, I didn't realise that you were going to be the host of this show and it's completely made my year so far. I know that we're only one month in, but the best 2024 gift anyone could have given me. <laughs> that is a huge compliment given you have just been awarded an Order of Australia. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's an honour to be uh, receiving an award um, in the Australia Day Honours this year, uh, particularly after, I suppose, all of the work that I've done in the disability and inclusion space. Obviously, I, I don't do these things just for the awards or anything, but to um, have it recognised in such a way, I think, really reflects on the way that diversity and inclusion, particularly around disability, mm. um, is certainly at the forefront of our Australian culture and how we want to do better in that space. So it, it really was an honour to have that award. Award. Um, it looks great on my resume and it's a huge flex for my friends, um, but I'm very honoured. <laughs> Do you ever get sick about answering questions about your disability or do you enjoy keeping the awareness and inclusive conversations going? I really enjoy the inclusive conversations. I get asked about my disability quite often, but actually not as much as I used to, in fact. Um, when I was younger and growing up, I grew up with my disability uh, it would almost be the very first thing that people would ask me about. And these days, I think in, in 2024, it's it's so commonplace to see people with disabilities out in our community now that uh, people notice that I do have one, but the conversation doesn't necessarily always steer in that direction. But mm. I'm, I've always been a huge fan of curiosity and people who mm. ask questions about my disability are usually very curious people. They want to know how my prosthetic works. They want to know what my life is like um, living with a disability and I think curiosity should always be rewarded. And so I always do appreciate those conversations. I'm curious to know what drew you to competitive swimming when you were younger. See, there's the curiosity there. <laughs> um, <laughs> so obviously swimming is a very uh, popular sport in Australia. It's one of our most popular Olympic and Paralympic sports. Uh, for me, however, I wasn't necessarily inspired by uh, our Olympians or Paralympians when I first began. In fact, swimming was um, almost forced upon me in the way of rehabilitation when I lost my leg as a three-year-old. 
Um, and I think that's where a lot of our great Paralympians come from actually is a rehabilitation pool. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of where I started my swimming journey, but I didn't really begin my dream of becoming an athlete until I was about 10 or 11 years old. So it's been a lifelong love of mine. I haven't really swum since I've retired though. I've been retired for a year and a half and I've swam twice. And that's because I've had to for an ad (laughs) that I was filming, but yeah, it's just, uh, it was nice to have the career that I did have. Why have you only swum twice? Have you had enough? You've spent way too many hours training. It's a, um, I've come to realize that when you don't swim for work, cause that was my job in a way, Yeah. it's actually a lot of effort to go to a swimming pool and like <laughs> get your swimsuit on, jump in. I usually swim about 500 meters and then I've, I've had enough and that's not very long. I don't think that's long enough. Cause I used to swim six Ks in a session and then your hair is wet and then you've got to go home and I've just built a home gym actually in the last week and I find that that's much more of a convenient way to exercise because I can exercise whenever I feel like it. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of not a big trip to the swimming pool. So it's not that I don't love the pool. It's just that, um, yeah, I just feel like I find it's a huge inconvenience now to go. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, As I understand, your mother and grandfather were both swimmers and that your father was quite athletic. So it's a little bit in the family. Yeah, um, my family are naturally quite athletic. They don't really use the athletic prowess in the way that they should. I think I've actually got quite a lazy family, but we're all um, genetically gifted in terms of being athletic if we want to be. And I think that most people are actually genetically gifted in that way. But yeah, I really refined that craft a lot when I was younger. I was very fortunate to, um, though, that my grandfather, as you mentioned, and my mother were swimmers. And I was very fortunate to have extremely flexible joints. So um, like I had insane shoulder flexibility. I have really great ankle flexibility. And so despite being a leg amputee when I was younger, my kick was almost as strong as an able-bodied person just because Mm. of the range of my ankle. And so that was a real blessing to have that that flexibility in my body until I became an elite athlete when in fact um, the flexibility had to be controlled. And that was a huge part of why I needed a double shoulder reconstruction in, in the after London 2012 was because um, my ligaments were being stretched so far beyond where they should have been time and time again that they kind of tore off my shoulders, which wasn't ideal. But, um, yeah, very blessed to have that in my family. And uh, I always wonder, I suppose, how much of a part the genetics played and how much of a part the determination played. But I suppose that's a question that can never be answered. I, I want to talk about that determination. But a lot of people have gifts that they don't necessarily fully realise. Talk me through the sort of commitment it takes to become a professional athlete. The professional athlete is a huge commitment. It's much bigger than you ever imagined that it would be. And I often say to people or my friends that, In a way, like I always knew that I wanted to be an elite swimmer or on the Australian swim team. And I never really truly understood what kind of a commitment it would take. And by the time I did realize how much of a commitment these things do take, I was already elbow deep into what I was doing. Um, And if anyone had told me at the very beginning of my journey, just how much of my life it would, um, I would have to commit to the sport. I'm not entirely sure if I ever would have thrown myself in as much as I did. Um, so it is a huge commitment. We used to train like 10 times a week, uh, about three hours a week, uh, three hours a session. So we'd be spending about 20, 25 to 30 hours a week in the pool and then gym on top of that, all of our physio 
And then, of course, you've got to factor in nap time, which napping is very important for swimmers. Um, but, yeah, it completely consumes you. But um, you have to really love and be very passionate about what you do if you want to make it to the top. And I was fortunate that I absolutely loved what I was doing. And I'm interested in juggling that with something that makes you money because for yeah. a long time, I imagine, as you're training and building up, you're not necessarily making any money. Oh, that's the, I think that's the biggest misconception that Australia has is that athletes are rolling in money and that is categorically false in every, in every way that it can be because we spend every single minute that we are awake either training to get better or thinking about how we can become a better athlete and uh, very, very few of us, in fact, do have nine to five jobs. And if we do, we're exhausted all the time. Um, and it really does impact the way that we can perform. And so it was really tricky for me growing up because I always only knew swimming. And the only time that I ever had a job was when I was taking a huge break from the sport. Um, and so that was really tricky. And on top of that, I was also a Paralympic athlete and Paralympic athletes uh, is very extremely difficult to find sponsors as a Paralympic athlete. And the only way that you can really make money being an athlete is if you sign sponsorship deals and endorsement mm. deals. And the only way that you can do that is if you're not only the best in the world, but multiple times over or, or a world record holder. And so it's a real grind to get to the top um, and very, very few people can make a living out of their sport um, unless you play a professional code like AFL or cricket um, or anything like that where you can travel and, and represent teams all across the world. So, uh, yeah, being a swimmer is a very hard life, <laughs> but uh, I, it's getting better. It is certainly getting better. In fact, the year that I retired last year, I know that um, the support for swimmers increased, um, I think, almost double, and I was like, okay, of course I retired at the most perfect time. <laughs> so how were you able to do it, I'm assuming? you had some kind of support, be it family or otherwise, to enable you to continue training and not work? Yeah. In the younger years, um, when I first made the Australian swim team, I was still living at home. And so my family uh, was supporting me. Mum was loved to, mum loves to cook for her kids. So she, I think her grocery bill uh, tripled in a, in a way. Um, and then when I left school, I actually moved to the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. And there you're a fully funded athlete where you're provided with accommodation, you're provided with all of your meals and food. And the only thing that you have to focus on is training. Um, but then when I left the AIS in 2012, uh, yeah, I needed to find my own way to support myself. And so I was working actually as a swim coach. So I would train in the mornings um, and then jump out of the pool, have a shower, and then go straight back onto pool deck and coach for a few hours. And that's kind of the way that I supported myself. But I had a really supportive partner who, you know, said you can contribute where you can, but uh, she was definitely contributing a lot more than I was, <laughs> that's for sure. And then uh, as I became a bit more successful around the Rio 2016 period, that's when I started signing a few sponsors. And um, they've like Toyota was the very first sponsor that I signed and they've supported me the whole way through my career since 2016. And they're still supporting me in my retirement. So they've been amazing. You mentioned that you worked as a swim coach. Have you ever been a swim teacher? Because I don't know if you remember, but you offered to teach me how to swim because I don't know how to swim. <laughs> but now I'm worried that that offer is off the table because you're going to be at the Paralympics as a broadcaster. Girl, that offer is never off the table. And you're saying that the only time period that I can teach you how to swim is when the Paralympics or the Olympics is on. I can teach you to swim whenever you like. In fact, summer is the best month to learn how to swim because, as you know, it's been 
awfully hot this year um, and it would have been the perfect time. So the offer's still on the table. I'm just waiting for the phone call. I want to have a chat about resting foot face. And obviously (laughs) that's a derivative of resting bitch face. But can you talk us through what led you to post a picture with that hashtag? Because I love your sense of humour and this was an instance in which you could have responded in a different way. That actually actually wasn't my sense of humour. It was a friend of mine. Um, I did a piece on television last year about the Paralympics because uh, the Paralympic TikTok page the International Paralympic Committee, their TikTok page is very tongue-in-cheek. And a lot of us Paralympic athletes um, obviously are very comfortable with our disabilities. Uh, We use our disabilities, in fact, on the world stage. That's why we're Paralympians. And the Paralympic TikTok page is a little bit tongue-in-cheek and uh, it doesn't necessarily make fun of the disability, but when funny things happen to someone with a disability, just like anyone with an able-bodied person, um, they tend to post about it. And people on the internet don't really know how to take, uh, I suppose, fails when it comes to Paralympic athletes or people with disabilities. And uh, a lot of people were jumping to the defence of these Paralympic athletes saying, you know, you shouldn't be saying these things about people with disabilities, you should be making fun of them. And here we are all sitting as Paralympic athletes being like, well, we're just doing the same as what everybody else does. And so I made a comment about this on, on television and somebody wrote a, um, a comment on the, the project Instagram page saying that I um, I wasn't qualified to make a comment because my disability was, I can't remember the words that they used, but they said that in, in summary that I, I wasn't disabled enough to make a comment for the dis- disability community. <laughs> and so I filmed a video of myself with this comment in the background and I just kind of put my prosthetic foot up against my face and rested my head <laughs> on it saying that I don't, I, I don't have a disability, so obviously I'm not qualified to make such a comment. <laughs> And one of my friends commented on my video saying that I had resting foot face and it's become a thing where he's wanting to print it on a T-shirt and turn it into a thing. It's quite funny. (laughs) It's so, it's so funny. Um, Is there a downside to being famous and in the public eye? Obviously you get critics online saying all sorts of things under videos, but is there another, can there be other more sinister things that come out of being so recognisable? Um, not in my case, I think actually having a disability in a way kind of protects me from that because, uh, what I really saw from our community when that video in particular was posted is that, uh, everybody kind of wants to protect people with disabilities, protect a a vulnerable group within our communities. And so people don't necessarily say too many negative things. And if they do, I haven't read them. They, um, they most likely have, but I haven't read these comments. Um, And it was a really interesting conversation that I actually had with Kate Campbell when I used to train with her because, um, you know, she she didn't perform as well as she would have liked to have at the Rio 2016 Games and had to turn her social media off because of, I suppose, how recognisable she was, but um, the, the performance that she had wasn't the desirable performance that she wanted, the outcome that she wanted. And she was getting um, a lot of really horrible and awful comments on social media. 
And then I said to her, that's never happened to me before and I lose all the time. (laughs) And she said to me that no one would ever make a comment like that about a Paralympian. And it kind of got me thinking that she was right in a way. And I'll be interested to see how the community responds to people with disabilities the more that we get comfortable with disability and more comfortable talking Mm. about disability, if that conversation changes. So I'm, I'm interested to see... Um, the more that people talk about the issues around disability, if the, the the conversation does change and the keyboard warriors jump on a little bit more. Uh, but yeah, so far at the moment, it's uh, I've been, had a pretty smooth sailing, that's for sure. What I have noted doing events with you is that there is another side to fandom and that is when somebody is perhaps too much of a fan that it becomes unsettling. Yeah, absolutely. I've had experiences where people almost become obsessive with what you've done. And I suppose the more I'm in the public eye, the the more that tends to happen. And in fact, I noticed when my Netflix documentary Rising Phoenix came out that I was starting to get really strange messages from people, Um, you know, some people showing up to events and recording me no matter where I walked or following me around the streets. And if more than anything, I was always very comfortable with, um, I suppose, what I put on my social media, you know, I never felt uncomfortable with information that I was putting out there. But now I've found since um, I've becoming more and more recognisable that I actually have to be really careful about my privacy. And um, I'm really careful about the things that I post about my family. I've seen pictures of my nieces and nephews being used in horrible ways on social media. And so now I'm more private and it's a real shame because I, I do want to share as much of myself that I can with people. But I know that for 99% of the population, what I put out there is taken in the right way, but there's 1% of the population out there that use those images or use those phrases and turn them into really weird things. So, um, yeah, I've certainly gotten mock private. Or use your location, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. And where you are at that time. Yeah, so I'm really careful about, I suppose, security around events where I'm at now. And it's just been interesting. Like I've, I've worked very closely with Ian Thorpe over the last few years and he's a real stickler for security and making sure that everybody who comes through the door is is um, who they're supposed to be. And I've always, initially I thought that was a bit weird. I thought he was being overreactive. But now that I've become, uh, I suppose, more of a public face, I understand where he's coming from in that sense now. And, uh, yeah, there's there's certainly some people out there who, who aren't, listening to your platform in the way that they should be, that's for sure. What I found most fascinating hearing you speak at events is when you talk about your true happiness and you are the most decorated female Paralympian in Australian history, yet that isn't what brought you the most joy. Talk me through that. Yeah, my, my swimming career was a strange one because I started off my swimming career like every other child in Australia that wants to be an elite athlete is that I wanted to win a gold medal. And like I said earlier in the interview, I didn't really understood exactly what that took and what commitments that took, what sacrifices that took. And I found that when I was actually my most successful is when I was by far my most miserable because I was living a life with a win at all cost attitude and that was at the expense of everything else in my life. And so I was ignoring my relationships. I was not giving the time to my family like I should have been and not taking care of my emotional well-being in any sense of the word at all. And um, I won a few gold medals in London and in Rio, broke a few world records around that era. That was my most successful, but I was so miserable. And it kind of wasn't until I actually started losing where I had to fall back on my family and had to fall back on my friendships and my relationships 
and spend more time with those people because they're the ones that really were helping me lift back up again. And um, I noticed that I was becoming more and more happy. <laughs> and then I joined this swimming program with Kate and Bronte Campbell. And that was by far the worst that I performed. I think it mostly had to do with my age, which may not have been because Emma McKeon is still performing very well and we're at the same age, but I like to use my age as an excuse, <laughs> of course. But I wasn't performing as well as I used to. And I was like, I haven't won a race since 2016. And I think the last three years of my life and not my life, last three years of my swimming career were by far my, my happiest because um, I was challenging myself in every single way that I could. And despite the outcome not being what I wanted it to necessarily be, I actually found myself by far the happiest that I could because I remember going on a weekend away with Kane and Bronte and I was speaking to them and said, no matter how I perform in Tokyo, the fact that I have put myself out there, I've trained in an Olympic training program, the first Australian athlete to do so, and push myself so hard in this program, regardless of what happens in Tokyo, I'm going to be, walk away and be so proud of myself. And that's kind of when I reflected on my career at the very end, when I thought about all the success I had, all of the moments that I reflect on in my career now are actually the times when I challenged myself. It wasn't necessarily when I stood on top of a podium. It was all of the times when I, um, you know, felt like the world was against me and I kind of rose up over that and challenged myself in a whole new way and learned something about myself. They're all the things that I remember from my swimming career. And, um, yeah, it makes me sad that the athletes, not necessarily as much anymore, but the athletes really do value themselves and whether they win or lose because it was actually when I was winning that I was by far the most miserable. So it's, it was an interesting turnaround on how I viewed success in the sport at the end. Speaking of challenges and getting ready for them, you've got another very exciting challenge ahead. In a few days, you're going to become a mother. Yes, um, I'm only a few days away from becoming a first-time mum. And it's fascinating, I suppose, in the lead up to a childbirth for the first time because you know that your life is going to completely change. And even this morning, like I was tidying up my kitchen and I just imagined like this little boy running around behind me and it just made me smile and he's not even here yet. So I'm really looking forward to uh, being a mum for the first time. And I know that uh, it's going to bring, he's going, I'm having a boy, he's going to bring so much love into my family. And I like, it was interesting. I said goodbye to my mother at Christmas this year because I go down to Melbourne every year for Christmas. And I was standing by my car because I was about to drive home and I live in Sydney and she lives in Melbourne. And so we don't see each other very often. And she walked up to me and she just burst into tears. Oh. And I said to her, like, Mom, what's wrong? Like, what, what's, what's wrong? She's like, uh, she said, I'm really going to miss you. I know you're going to have a big year. I'm not going to see you much. And the next time I see you, you're going to be a mum. And she, like, couldn't even get through that bit. Oh, and then it made, it made me cry. And, um, yeah, it was really special. So she's actually coming up. We're having a C-section and she's coming up two days prior to be able to spend a bit of time with my partner and myself um, before our whole life's about to change and just taking those last few moments of being mum and dad's little girl um, before I become a mum. So, yeah, it's very special to be able to share that, not only with my partner but also, like, with my whole family. It's, it's going to be amazing to have a, a boy. Ellie Cole, a champion on so many fronts. Definitely look out for her as she will be heading over to Paris in the Paralympics as a commentator. And 2024 already is such a huge year for Ellie. Baby Felix arrived early. 
but she's definitely got her hands full. It is now time for the weekend list with the fabulous Helen Smith. It's where we unpack what we've been watching, buying, listening to, doing and everything in between. Helen, what are your recommendations this weekend? Okay, my first recommendation is something I didn't think I needed until something bad happened. Oh, okay. So I am recommending portable fly screens that you can put in your windows. If you live in an apartment like me and you put them up and there's no fly screen, you can get them from Bunnings, 20 bucks. These are old windows that don't have yeah, fly like screens. old windows, the old buildings you yeah, pull yeah, up yeah. and you insert like this little fly screen bit there. Okay. And it clips down and there we go. The reason why is I, it's hot in Sydney and I slept with my windows open. I do it all the time and I was like, oh, my window's still open. I mosquitoes. forgot about it. Yeah, mosquitoes. The least of my problems. Okay. <laughs> the least of my problems. Okay. Antoinette, I woke up the other morning just before 2am to a possum, a ringtail possum next to my bedside table. And oh. I, yeah, and I cracked my pants. I flung out of my bed so fast. I thought it was a snake because I see this little ringtail possum like its tail. And I was like, oh my God. And then I don't have my glasses on, so I can't even see. And it's pitch black. And so I've got my phone and I'm shining a light and I'm like, oh my God, if it's a snake, I can't move. Yep. It was a bloody possum that crawled through my window, through the blinds. So don't keep your windows open. And go to Bunnings. Go how's, to Bunnings. How's that for an ad for Bunnings? Oh. Having said that, what did the possum do when you woke up and sh- put a light on it? Uh, well, it, it crapped itself as well. Okay. It just stared at me. And while we stared at each other, and I was like, I don't know what to do, mate. Can, can, can they attack? I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, you, you don't want to find out. I didn't I want to find out, and I didn't know either. So I was like, what do I do? Oh, my God. Trying to get my glasses, but they were next to the bloody possum. And meanwhile, I'm sweating because it's so hot, and the fan, the possum's got my fan. So I was just like, the possum got your fan? Well, the possum was in front of my fan, oh, cooling okay. off. <laughs> and I'm here sweating. And anyway, long and the short, I called up people. It was going to cost $400, $450. They couldn't come till 9 a.m. And I was like, no, no, no. Called my dad who was on night shift. He told me, open those blinds and put a little snack for it and it will come out. And so I got a bit of banana, chopped it off, and I got the courage to put it on the windowsill so little baby possum could crawl Aww. out. And so I just uh, went into my kitchen and slept on the kitchen floor for the rest of the night. <gasps> oh, wow. Yeah. That's quite the recommendation. Yeah. Ooh. Have screens on your windows, please. Mine um, is a comedy on Netflix. Yeah. So it's very, very different to yours. Um, it's called Louder Milk. I don't, I don't know. I have not heard it of it. It is really, really funny. So it's... If Tough Love had a face, then it's the main character, Sam Loudermilk, mm-hmm. um, and it's played with such grumpy precision by Ron Livingston. So it's about sobriety. It's, an, uh, it's mm-hmm. a comedy series about sobriety and about a music journalist who can no longer be a music journalist because of drugs and alcohol and rock and roll and everything, and it follows the journey of him as a recovering alcoholic. He's trying to do the right thing, except he's just a really miserable, horrible person, and it's hard. But not only that, he gets a job running AA classes, but it oh. is so funny because he's so awful, and I consider myself a bit of a straight shooter, but this character, it's like next level in your face. Um and I just think it's really kind of laugh out loud funny, um, but it's clever writing, excellent performances, but it also delves into some pretty 
heavy issues like addiction mm. and mental illness and a whole bunch of other stuff with a lot of humour. So Louder Milk on Netflix is my mm. recommendation. I love that one. Uh, my second recommendation is actually from Listener. It's called Secrets We Keep Season 2, Nesta Traders. And I sit across from the team who made this. So I was kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, Nesta Traders, whatever. And it's really good. So it is about... Hold a second, hold a second. Are your colleagues going to be surprised that you were just like... But it's really good. I was good. just like, because it was just so in my head. Like I was just like, yeah, it was you, just you there. Saw, yeah, you okay. know, I saw the process of it happening okay. and I kind of was just like, you know, just another work thing. No, no, no. This is actually like, I am hooked. It is about ASIO. So the Australian Security Intelligent Organization. Yep. And it's about a how it was infiltrated by a Soviet mole. Right. But yeah, it's really great. It's made by a bunch of amazing journalists and producers from the team and it's hosted by Joey Watson, Mm. who's obsessed. He's been working on this story for three years. Is this his story or he's just unraveling it? Like he's done all the legwork. He's found all of these people who were part of ASIO. He's found all of these like informants, I guess, and he's gone like to Woomera where there's bases and all these, oh, wow. like it's full on investigative journalism. But like true crime slash real, true crime, real crime, doco. Yeah. Amazing. That is my recommendation. Didn't think I'd be into spies, but I am now. Okay. I'm going to have to check it out and I'll hope hmm. to be as surprised that our colleagues are this talented. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I feel like you're coming up with all these like complex and interesting recommendations because my next one is as lowbrow as something gets. But sometimes when things are so good, sometimes an oldie is a goodie. I'm talking about Uno, the card game. Don't laugh. Don't laugh. I'm trying to... I feel a lot of judgment right now. I'm not judging. I I love Uno. But I am playing it so much lately. like... Where? How did this happen? (laughs) And Uno Flip, which is a variation of Uno. Okay, how and why? Trying to spend less time on gadgets. I'm trying to Mm. be more mindful. I'm trying to. I'm trying to do things that just require focusing on whether you can put a pickup two on top of a pickup two. Yeah, I know the rules. I was going to say, what rules do you play by? And and that's what I've realised that everybody plays by their own rules. And there's a good chance nobody read the pamphlet back in 1997. and so you end up getting into a whole lot of biffos, mm. verbal. Okay, I did say I was going to be mindful and calm, but sometimes you get into biffos over the rules. But I just love it. I can just play endless game of Uno's. I don't care if I'm at a restaurant, I'll p- take out a, game, a packet <laughs> of Uno. I'll just play Uno all the time. I, I'm expecting you to without Uno now. Like, just be just, like, guys, I just love it. A bit dull. This is a bit boring. <laughs> Let's just game, without you, Uno. Game on Uno. And. It's just what I'm really enjoying doing. And, yes, a lot of my conversations start now with, like, hey, how are you going? Do you want to play Uno? <laughs> so, and what do they say, Antoinette? Sometimes they say yes. Yeah. <laughs> Other times they just give me a strange look. Oh, I love this one. Bring back Uno. Well, that is it for this week. Thank you so much for being with us and tuning in. It is always a pleasure. If you want more of the Weekend Briefing, you can find us on the Listener app. You can download the Listener app in the App Store and you can follow us there. Otherwise, you can follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And why not give us a rating and a review for this fabulous interview with Ellie Cole. And also you can review and rate every episode. Also love to hear from you about your weekend list. Do you love Uno as well? Can you put a pickup two on top of a pickup two? That is the big question. Antoinette Latouf signing off. I'll catch you next week. Listener.
Listener.